And I think the big overarching story that has shaped the work that I do is the myth of water abundance in Canada. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who loves to put together some IKEA furniture, and that is <laughs> Dr. Kaylee Byers. I don't know if I love putting together IKEA furniture. I feel like it's a rite of passage. Everyone has to do it, and if you survive it with your significant other, you come out a better people. How many pieces are currently in your apartment? Like, do they have to be in full pieces or if they're like currently falling apart, does that count as one piece or multiple pieces? <laughs> Just a number. What, what, what are we talking about here? Like seven, Whoa, eight maybe. Okay. All what right. about you? What's uh, what's the Ikea composition of your apartment percentage wise? <laughs> I think I'm a little less like I'm going to I'm just looking around and I'm seeing like maybe three. So okay. I don't, I don't, my, my place is small, though. Yeah, well, and yeah, there's probably something in another room that you're just not accounting for, right? <laughs> probably. I mean, it's just it's totally possible. It made me think actually the other day, I don't know, I was talking about lamps and it made me think of, you remember that old Ikea lamp commercial? Like, do you feel sorry for this lamp? And it had the lamp out on the corner and it was like in the dark. <laughs> oh, yeah, and like yeah. I did. I did feel sorry for it. Ikea oh, is very good at marketing. They uh, they hook you in. Totally. And that's why all three of us today have Ikea furniture. Not just you and I, Michael, but our guest today also has some Ikea going on. <laughs> and that is Alan Shapiro. Alan is a Vancouver-based water and sustainability consultant and an instructor of BCIT's School of Business and Media. And uh, Alan has been leading Foresight Clean Tech Accelerator Center's Water Next Network, a national initiative to support the commercialization and adoption of Canadian water technologies. Oh, hey, Alan. How are you? Oh, hey. I'm good. I never appreciated IKEA's instruction manuals until we bought Structube furniture for the first time this year. And let me tell you that you have to put it together just like Ikea furniture and the instructions make no sense. So I need someone in Sweden to be writing my instruction manuals in as intuitive way as possible. I don't understand how there's any instructions for building furniture that make less sense than Ikea's. Like <laughs> you are blowing my mind, especially because like it'll say things like, oh, you've got 20 of these things and you look and you have 10 of them. Like that just is confusing. Ikea always struck me like Lego, really. It's like you either have the pieces or you don't. And fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Take it up with central command. You don't have the pieces. But it's still like follow this like simple instruction manual yep. to get to something that resembles this bed. Yep. Possibly. <laughs> possibly. Who knows possibly. what it could possibly be? Adult Lego. You just never know. It's like a create your own adventure. Well, transitioning from some of the more hard structured items to something a little more fluid, we're going to be talking today about water. And um, I want to, we want to start off with, Alan, you're a self-proclaimed water nerd. So what is it about water that makes you go H2O? <laughs> Can I decline to answer anything <laughs> with like a terrible pun in the question? Are you kidding that me? That was actually, that was fantastic. Do you know my whole brand of comedy is just bad puns? 
Oh, we're just getting started here, Alan. We we got a whole host coming at you here. This is like a whole topic of conversation. But do you know if you're like a scientist or a domain expert in a particular space, like everyone tries the same puns on you, right? So yeah. on the mm-hmm. one hand, if you're the one making the puns, it's fantastic. But on the other hand, there's like three water puns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, no. I can't wait to learn what the other two are and then use them. <laughs> and I will not tell you what those other two are. But tell me why you love water. Like, why do you love it? I love water because I hated sort of disciplinary silos right out the gate. So my background's in geoscience. And right away, people were like, hey, you look at this thing or you look at this thing and you don't look at this thing and you interact with this community of experts. And water seemed to be one of those themes that inevitably like brings together biologists and physicists and chemists and earth scientists and deals with real world problems. And I really enjoyed that where it's it's really hard to stay in a box, in part because you flow out of the box unless the box is hermetically sealed. <laughs> so you just can't help yourself. I'm sorry. I mean, it's yeah. part of who you are. I love it. <laughs> so what is it about water that brings all those different fields together? I think water is just so concrete and tangible. It's funny when we chat about science communication um, on the science slam stage and on the nerd night stage, when we look at you know mathematicians or physicists, sometimes they're like, reaching for ways to make concepts relatable for folks. For me, it's the other problem of everyone knows what water is. Everyone drinks it, or I hope everyone drinks it. And so Mm -hmm. often you're dealing with misinformation, but inevitably as a um, medium to communicate science, it's really, really tangible. And everyone's got thoughts on this thing that falls out of the sky or this puddle that I just stepped into, um, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. It's this great way to pull in a range of different communities. So speaking of some of that miscommunication, Alan, you know, for the the average person out there, the average bag of mostly water, uh, what are some of the things that humans don't know about water? I think one of the big challenges we face is that we interact with water in the environment in our own ways. If you live in Vancouver, as I do, we look out the window and we see rain or we go to the beach and we see the ocean, which is fantastic. But we don't realize how much stuff is dissolved in that water, which really from a human health perspective or from a water treatment perspective is the make or break, right? So when we look at, you know, First Nations drinking water is a huge challenge in Canada or um, water accessibility for communities around the world. We're really talking about the same water that you and I might have here that comes out of our tap, but we don't necessarily have that understanding of what is dissolved in a glass of water. And so that's one of the big pieces of just understanding um, both the perceptions of water, which can be significant, either perceptions of water as being clean when it isn't, or perceptions of water as not being clean when it is. And then also just making sure that we have the data that we need to make good decisions, which is part of every science, regardless of where you happen to sit. So Alan, I recently did a little talk about the beginnings of life in the universe and it sort of boiled down to this concept of water being really important and i was I've been dying to ask you this question if you could encapsulate maybe in better words than i used why water is so special you know in the universe water is incredibly special we grow up with water being our reference fluid right that is what we associate all liquids as being, but that's actually not the case. Water dissolves 
so many of the things around us, which is critical for it being a fluid that moves around our body and carries um, nutrients around for our cells and waste from our cells, for example. Um, Water is less dense in its solid form than it is in its liquid form, which means that when we form ice on our lakes in the winter, we're not killing everything in those lakes. And we see water around us in solid, liquid, and gas form, which is not the case for something like carbon dioxide. You might have seen dry ice. You might have seen um, carbon dioxide as a gas, but we don't have a liquid form of CO2. And so the fact that water just does all of these things that we take for granted is actually really, really special um, and very much the exception rather than the rule. That's pretty much what I said. Um, (laughs) I'm just joking. (laughs) That was much better than what I said in my presentation. (laughs) But you did have dry ice for your presentation, right? So, I mean, that automatically wins out for sure wins out. So what do you think the world would look like without water? It would probably look really interesting and be a p- terrible place to live. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you imagine if we had no water in the oceans for a second? We could just like go for a little hike through the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. That would be pretty cool mm-hmm. for like the first day. Mm-hmm. And then we'd get old really, really quickly. In all seriousness, like there's so many places in the world that don't have the water that we do in Canada, right? Like in Canada, we've got the luxury of water being part of our culture, right? Like we talk about canoeing or we talk about rain and these are all things that we share as Canadians, which is not true of many parts of the world. So for sure, there's many parts of the world where waking up to not enough water is very much within the realm of your day-to-day experience. Well, even in Dune, I don't know if you've seen the, the latest Dune, Alan. Not you yet, know, but I have tickets this, for two weeks from now. Basically, this desert world, you know, which is inhabited by humanoids that are full of water. So the water inside them becomes very valuable, you know, when you're living on a world that doesn't have the oceans and this water cycle that that we have. So even, you know, tears and sweat and all of that stuff that we kind of, you know, just exude and kind of like get out of my body, you know, becomes ever so much more valuable. And then, you know, I would, you know, want to get into sort of this, I guess, (laughs) dark future of certain places on earth, if that actually does become like a really big issue. Think about like the basic concept of sewage. Like when we think about flushing a toilet, we're essentially saying we don't want this thing here. So we're going to use as much water as we possibly can to move this thing from here somewhere else. And then to keep all of the things moving, we're going to flush that with more water. And the medium through which we get rid of our waste is water. Like that treats water as absolutely just the vehicle for moving other stuff around. So if you think about a water-scarce place, all of a sudden you can't just flush a toilet and expect water to do all the work for you. So it's not just water that becomes the issue, but it's all of these systems that we built that rely on water as being abundant. And so, yeah, same desert world. Flush toilets, probably not a thing. Interesting. I had not considered that as part of the dune building universe, but I assume (laughs) that it is true. I want to come back to um, something you said, like you were talking about the at, at the beginning about clean water. What is it about sort of place and space that can result in such different water experiences? So having clear, clean drinking water versus having not clean drinking water. Like what is it about that geography, where we are, resources available to us? What What is that about? 
I think there's two pieces to that. One is where does contamination come from? And two is how do we get contamination out? So the first piece of that is when we live in or near environments that are relatively pristine, we have few sources of contamination. There's things that naturally can end up in our water, like I don't necessarily want to be drinking Giardia. So we've got natural contaminants, but a lot of the stuff that ends up in water, if you think about like Ikaluit's recent like jet fuel and their water supply contamination, that is very much a symptom of the fact that we just have a lot more contaminants moving around and ending up in the environment today than we did 100 years ago. So that's one. Where are contaminants coming from? How are they ending up in the water? And then two is, how do we get them out? And so if you live in a city like Vancouver, a lot of our tax dollars go towards water treatment plants, and those water treatment plants remove all forms of contaminants from our water. But if you live on a farm and you have a well, then there's not a lot protecting you from contaminants that might end up in your well. And so whenever we talk about drinking water, um, we're really talking about how much do you have in terms of resources to protect the water that you're drinking, whether you're removing contaminants from it or whether you just happen to be in a clean enough place where those contaminants aren't ending up there in the first place. And is that, do you know if that, because uh, I actually know nothing about this, because you were talking about Vancouver tax dollars going towards clean water. There's a federal, like there's federal oversight for some of that, or is it all mostly local? It depends where you are. And that is part of the challenge that water is one of those things that crosses all forms of jurisdiction. So water in Canada is managed at the local, at the regional, at the provincial, and at the federal level, mm -hmm. depending on what you're talking about, which is why we are terrible at managing water in Canada. But at least from the health perspective, that's a mix of Health Canada regulations and the province as the regulator to make sure that we are testing our drinking water and wastewater and keeping those according to the regulations that Health Canada defines. So you were talking about water, access to it, Canada's role in it. What, what exactly do you do? What does it look like to work for water? That's a great question. Um, I struggled for a while to figure out what my role was as a sci-commer in the water space, because part of it was, we've got so many cool stories to tell. And if water were my client, what would I be doing? Like, what kind of stories would I be telling? And I think the big overarching story that has shaped the work that I do is the myth of water abundance in Canada. Like, we're all sold on this idea that we've got a ton of water and we don't really have to worry about it. We don't pay much for water because... We just assume that it will always be there. And that really underlies how we've shaped policy around water. It underlies how we use water and how businesses use water. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that together means that as an ecosystem, we don't really necessarily sit down to talk to each other as water scientists and water policymakers and water professionals say, okay, like, what are the high priorities that we have? If you're in Singapore, you have very, very limited water supply. So you, regardless of where you are working in the water space, have a very good sense of where you fit in the bigger picture and what the priorities are. In Canada, that priority list is still very much just floating around in the ether, in the broth somewhere. <laughs> and so I work with a few different hats to kind of help coordinate that. 
um, working both on the water innovation side, working on the water nonprofit side, and on the water and science communication side to really try to get more people in the same rooms, talking about the same things, um, coordinating, and then coming up with those shared priorities. So I guess you would say that your work has more than one element. <laughs> ooh, ooh, that was chemistry, but we'll take it. Um, Ellie, you talked about some of the stories that you tell. And if we can maybe dig into some of those stories about as Canadians, you know, what we need to know about water and maybe what we should know in the future for us in this country uh, about water. There's this really um, overused cliche statement that if climate change is the shark, then water is its teeth. And I think it's cliche on the one hand, but on the other hand, we're all recording this from Vancouver a week ago, right? We had a massive atmospheric river event in Vancouver with a ton of flooding across the province. And so inevitably, we're starting to feel that whether that's not enough water or too much water, we are seeing that kind of overarching climate change trend shaping how we interact with water day to day and in different ways, depending on where you live. So if you live on um, Vancouver Island, you might live in a community that has um, water shortages every summer, and that's now becoming the norm. If you live currently in the lower mainland of BC, you live in a place where flooding is becoming a much higher risk. If you live in a First Nations community that might already have an insecure water supply, right, where there's contamination that's ending up in your water, chances are climate change is accenting that in some capacity. And so one of the things that we need to be aware of is that when we talk about climate change, one of the ways that we feel that and we'll continue to feel that more acutely is through water in a range of different ways. And if we don't have an understanding of those impacts, or if we don't even have good water baseline data to begin with, which we don't in many parts of Canada, it becomes a lot harder to understand those impacts and trends. Yeah, that's really interesting how, you know, in, in it's very specific to where to where you live, obviously, like, Water is not equal everywhere in the world. It's a different issue depending on where you are. And something like water sustainability then also is going to be something that is going to be talked about on a federal level, but then is also going to be very you know impactful in the microcosm of the community. So what are some of like the... How do you go about tackling water sustainability, you know, on like a larger scale or even on like a smaller scale in, inside of our communities? That is the million dollar question, which we're really struggling with right now, because in a way, CO2 is easy as a contaminant. It's one we don't see, and that's a problem. Getting people united against a contaminant that we don't see is a challenge. But one CO2 molecule that is put into the atmosphere in India is equivalent to a CO2 molecule that's removed from the atmosphere in Canada. With water, it becomes this question of how do we have a coordinated global and national conversation, but also have data at the local and regional level and have initiatives at the local and regional level. So there's just a lot more players and the issues become much more locally rooted. But that's also an opportunity. So again, communities around the world, regardless of where you ask, if you start talking about water, they've got a lot of thoughts. And so it becomes this really engaging medium, again, to pull people in. And so 
understanding the sort of crisis of water, which is something we overuse, like we are in a water crisis, but we're not really, we're in this collection of local water crises that we need to make sure are getting enough airtime at a coordinated level where we can sit down and say, hey, you know what? What a First Nations community in Saskatchewan is facing is actually really similar to what a First Nations community in Quebec is facing. And if we can just make sure that we are sharing our best practices, we're sharing our data well enough, then all of a sudden there's an opportunity to work together and learn from each other. Well, and getting resources, right? Getting resources to the places that that need them in order to actually, as you say, remove contaminants from water and ensure clean drinking water supplies. When you're, you were talking about sort of the, that local component, I mean, when we think about water sustainability and water stewardship, is that largely driven by local initiatives that then informs national policies and practices? Is that sort of how it works? Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of really cool, successful initiatives locally, regionally. Um, in BC, one organization to check out is called the Healthy Waters Initiative. They've been allocating a bunch of provincial funding over the past year. So the province of BC put up, I don't remember how many million dollars to support watershed restoration work. And so the Healthy Waters Initiative has been working with nonprofits and community groups essentially to allocate that money to local projects. And the range of local projects is just phenomenal to say like, hey, here we're looking at salmon habitat and here we're looking at riparian zone enhancement. And here we're looking at, you know, algal bloom in a lake and how we can support, you know, improvements in lake quality. And so there's so many success stories. And that's one of the things that really gives me hope working in the space that I do is it's not a global challenge. It's a collection of local challenges, but also local initiatives and local um, stories that really can inspire people. Oh, amazing. Well, Kaylee, I think we should turn things over to another inspired group. Is it the Nerd Herd? You know it. Why is the sky What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? What is like carbon it's based? the fastest thing on Earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right, if you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, we post for them on our social media, at NerdNightYVR, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our first one comes in from Matt, who's an American. We've talked mostly about Canada, Alan, so far. Uh, we know Matt. He used to live in New York. He's moved to Los Angeles. So his question is, should he feel guilty about doing so since, you know, water? I mean, your choices are your choices. <laughs> should you feel guilty about living in L.A.? Only if you're sending occasional sunshine back to all of all of us in Canada, um, I think that's a that's a reasonable decision from a water perspective. I think you're okay, unless part of your life in LA just happens to be a lot more terrible for water. In which case, maybe you're not okay. Make good water decisions. <laughs> I guess I guess it's kind of crazy because I first really learned about Los Angeles from the movie Chinatown, which sort of describes how Los Angeles became a thing. You know, a city in a desert, essentially. So I guess thinking about now, California is huge. There's so many people living there. What are really like the major issues happening in California around water? Yeah, it's a funny question, because if we want to feel terrible about living anywhere from a water perspective, it's probably Canada, mm. because many drier parts of the world in California has major struggles with water right now, and especially as an agricultural producer, and agriculture uses a huge amount of water. That is something that 
really starts to cross our minds when we think about climate and sustainability. So really, if you're going to feel guilty about anything, it's the fact that we live in Canada and we don't talk about water enough. LA actually spends a lot more time talking about their water supply than Vancouver does about ours. Oh, that's good, Ellen. Thanks very much. I didn't have enough things that I feel awful about. So (laughs) I'm I'm glad that I've got one more. I'll just add it to the Jenga (laughs) that I've got going on. Uh, Second question, speaking about Jenga and the bonds that hold it together. Sophia asks, why are H bonds so important and how are they so strong? Great question, Sophia. I'm going to take a crack at this, but I will be honest that I'm not a chemist. As like a weird person who looks at high level, you know, interactions between humans and water and contaminants and all that fun stuff. It's been a while since the last time I thought about H bonds. But the most I can pull out on the spot is that some of those fancy properties of water we chatted about in a previous question are really due to the fact that water is a polar molecule. So water's got a little bit of a plus charge attached to its hydrogens and a little bit of a minus charge attached to its oxygens, which means that our water molecules want to stick together, which gives water all sorts of fun, cool properties. But as it happens, I know a chemist. And if I'm allowed to, can we phone a friend? Oh yeah, let's uh, let's do a phone is science friends segment, which uh, allows us to play some really cool music. So I'm gonna phone one of my best science friends and just a fantastic psychomer. Alex Gillet. Alex hopefully is going to join us from Gaspé, where she wears a bunch of different hats. She's the co-founder of ComSciCon Canada. She's a director of Pint of Science Canada. She's a renewable energy knowledge broker at Energia and just generally a chemistry nerd, which is perfect. So Alex, tell us about hydrogen bonds. Hi, guys. I am so happy that you called me about that question. Because I have to admit, I have to dive. I, I dived in, like, back into my chemistry books from years ago. Because it's something so fundamental that we just all forget about it and take it for granted. So even myself, I was like, oh shoot, I sh- I should know that better. Like it's so fundamental. But but so basically, if you shake water, those hydrogen bonds are gonna be broken up, and then they may rearrange in other shapes and all depending on the surrounding environment. So they're not that strong compared to regular bonds, actually, but they are very important for biochemistry because this is all proteins on um, nuclear uh, acids and all could maybe like around themselves on all, but otherwise they're not that strong, but they are very important. And this is why it gives uh, ice all those very important properties as well. And I have a lot of fun facts about ice. Oh, well, do share. Basically because of all those hydrogen bonds in between all the molecules, this is why water expands uh, and then may break a water bottle if you forget that in your car overnight, for example. So those hydrogen bonds are actually longer than covalent bonds, so they are longer than regular bonds. And then when water freezes, they kind of stay in place and they keep all those water molecules like further apart than they are in the liquid phase. And this is why it expands and then you have this emptiness in between all those water molecules and then the density gets lower and then, what, and then ice floats on water. So this is another big reason why water is so important and so unique. 
Okay, that's super cool because ice floats on water was one of our fun facts from earlier. I just honestly didn't know why that was a thing. So hydrogen bonds, apparently. Wow, this is uh, this is amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Alex, for um, answering our um, our new segment called uh, Phone a Science Friend. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Do you want to nerd out some more, Alan? Yeah, let's do it. What you about all right if you want to get on the nerd outs you can let us know drop us an email send us a message tell us what you are nerding out about and eric sent in that he is nerding out about supply chain disruption alan is there been any supply chain disruptions happening in your life um there is definitely supply chain disruptions happening from a flooding perspective in Vancouver, mm -hmm. for those of us rationing mm. fuel right now. But I was actually emailing with a friend of mine who runs a coffee shop in Edmonton, and he was saying that he hasn't been able to get coffee imports from Vancouver and from um, Asia because trucks aren't moving back and forth. It definitely reminds us how vulnerable we are. Yeah, it was pretty wild waking up and being like, oh, the one road that connects us to the rest of the country is gone now. Also... Like, not an earthquake person, and if you are an earthquake person and you haven't listened to Fault Lines, which is CBC's podcast from a few years ago that Joanna Wagstaff did talking about what would happen if there was an earthquake um, in Vancouver. But, like, in this particular case, Vancouver is fine in the roads connecting Vancouver to the rest of the world are the challenge. But can you imagine if there was an earthquake and we lost the roads, but also Vancouver really, really, really needed support stat? Like, it really throws that into perspective. Alan, what are you nerding about? Wow. <laughs> what a great question. <laughs> that was weak. Um, so I'm nerding out about sand dollars because I grew up in Alberta. We don't have sand dollars. And I was just in Tofino last week and I found a bunch of them on the beach. Mm -hmm. I'd never found them before. I just assumed it was this weird conspiracy people made up. But they're like living things that become not living things that are like fossil rocky things that you can then find and take home, yeah. which is just such a strange series of events. I say as a non-biologist who knows nothing about sand dollars. So please, Kaylee, enlighten me. Well, I mean, it's, it's not that, I mean, it's kind of just like, like if you were to die and then someone came along and picked up, picked up your bones and was like, ah, look, this is cool. I'm going to go put it on my table at home. Like that's a little bit of the process I think, that you just outlined. Except I don't think I would look very exciting. No. On a coffee table and sand dollars too. I think that's the big difference. Yeah. The thing that I always loved about sand dollars, because we spent a lot of time in Nova Scotia, and there is this um, sandbar just off from where we would go swimming. And there used to be a lot of sand dollars there. There aren't any more. And you'd swim around, you'd try to find the ones that were dead versus the ones that were alive. And it actually now, like, yeah, kind of morbid, like, find the dead ones, you know, wow. And was like this, the sort of like the flower like pieces on them, like that symmetry that they have. It's just like really, really beautiful. I've always found them just like so stunning. This just randomly makes me think of trace fossils. So trace fossils are these things that geologists are obsessed with, which is recurring patterns that you see in the rock record. And you don't know necessarily what 
made them because you're not studying the organism. You're studying the traces that that organism leaves behind, often the poop that that organism leaves behind in the fossil record. So about as much as I know of living beings is how they are preserved through rock, which is kind of a sad statement on life, actually. What about you, Michael? What are you nerding about? Do you have like a whole chest full of um, crumbling dollars? I have a chest of old coins that are probably crumbling somewhere. Hmm. They're probably rusting because um, I, I collected dollar coins way back in the day. Uh, but I am nerding out about a very special telescope that is getting ready for launch, the James Webb Space Telescope. If you're a Canadian and if you've not heard about this, if you've been around me at work, uh, you most likely have. This is the big news of the year. Uh, but it's been for, feels like forever since it's getting close to launch. As of this recording, now December 18th from French Guiana. Uh, I had to do, actually do some geography nerding because I had no idea about French Guiana. Uh, it's actually not even its own country. It's a French territory, which is the second largest region in France, uh, which is kind of weird because it's in South America. But then there's also Guyana, which is just a little bit west of French Guiana, which is also in South America, and also Guinea, which is in Africa, which used to be French Guinea. Uh, so colonialism is really messed up and weird. Uh, but I did enjoy <laughs> learning uh, something new about geography. And the Webb Telescope, though, is named after a guy. I don't know if you know this, but uh, he was not a friend to the LGBT community. And there was actually was a review this year to try and change the name, which didn't go through, which uh, really sucks. Um, but there's still hmm. a chance that if Biden steps in, he might uh, be able to change it. You know, he's not super popular these days maybe he you know he needs he needs a win you know they should never name these things after old dead white men i just don't understand why they do that um um although i do kind of like when last names kind of become their own word like hubble now is its own word it kind of sounds like a word even you don't really think about edwin hubble anymore like who cares about edwin hubble like we now have this really mm-hmm. cool telescope that mm-hmm. uh, makes amazing discoveries but JWST, which I think is what I'm going to refer to it now, uh, is a big deal for Canada. There is a Canadian-made instrument on the telescope, which means it's one of the biggest financial investments in space uh, since the Canada arm, uh, which means Canadian scientists will get a good chunk of scheduled time on this telescope. So I'm thinking about past guest Michelle Kunimoto, who is an exoplanet researcher now at MIT, uh, potentially discovery of worlds that are harboring life, answering questions, the origins of the universe. Like there's so much cool stuff that could come out of this uh, telescope. And, you know, it's hard to imagine like what astronomy was like before Hubble, you know, like my work, my place of work, the H. R. McMillan Space Center was born out of the space race in the 60s. And then in the 90s, after Hubble, uh, because space then became full of beautiful pictures, which we never had before. Um, and then they became screensavers and all the computers that people started to use in the 90s. <laughs> so who knows what new innovations JWST will kind of bring and then become part of our lives without us even really knowing about it. So... Do you think that transition from being like this grand, beautiful thing to people's screensavers was like really sad for space? <laughs> no, like, I honestly Aw. think it was a it was a big deal because those two things happened at the same time. Like we started to use computers more and then this background screensaver and then pictures of space. But in the 80s, like if we think about it, there was no beautiful pictures of space. Like we had fuzzy, blurry ones. 
You know, they mm-hmm. were in books and people were like, oh, mm-hmm. there's a weird picture of Saturn with a ring around it. And then all of a sudden just became this magical world. Like, what the hell are rings? So those two things that happened simultaneously, I think were actually, you know, coincidental, special, you know, for the field of astronomy could happen again. What do you, Kaylee? What have you been uh, psyched about? Well, I've been super excited. So season three, episode one guest, Dr. Silita Guy came on to talk to us about her research with bats and also her new children's book called Chasing Bats and Tracking Rats. And that is now out. And I have to admit, this is a little self-serving because I'm one of the characters in the book. And so I got a call. I actually ordered several of these books and I got a call from the bookstore where I had ordered them. And they were like, one of your books is in. I was like, where are the other ones? Like, we don't know. They're, <laughs> they're somewhere else. They got separated somewhere in their magical journey. So I like to imagine that they're on their way to me right now. But yeah, I'm just really, really excited for this for this book to be out. Um, it tells the stories of like 11 different scientists and their experiences doing urban ecology. The artwork is stunning. And it was also a little embarrassing when I went to pick up my copy because then I like immediately ordered several more of them. And the person behind the desk was like, oh, you want to order another book? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take four or something. And she was like, okay, what book? And I was like, oh, this one. It's <laughs> like the one that <laughs> you currently have in your hand. I was like, uh, yes, I can see how this is. <laughs> odd. (laughs) Anyway, they're going out to all the kidlets in my life and the not kidlets. So pretty excited. Congratulations, Dr. Guy, on a fantastic book. Wonderful. Uh, Well, Ellen, thank you so much for punning out with us about water and nerding out with us. This was an amazing conversation. Uh, Where can people learn more about your storytelling around water, your nerdery and all of the initiatives that you do? Uh, well, the best place to find me is on Twitter at watercom, C-O-M-M. And whatever I happen to be nerding about that day, or if you've got questions about water, feel free to jump in. Always happy to find <laughs> weird, watery folks from around the world. I guess everyone, like human, the definition of humans is weird, watery folks from around the world. So yes, Twitter. <laughs> oh, I love the idea of everyone just mashing their watery fingers into their into their keypads to message you. (laughs) Juices flying everywhere. Um, Well, thank you. This was an absolute delight. And thank you to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode was hosted by us, edited by me, and mixed by Elise Lane. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until we meet again, have a waterful week and we'll miss you. I'm so sorry, Alan. <laughs>